Welcome to the Truth CSGO Podcast, episode 97. Hey guys, this is Lefkrug. Hey guys, I'm Guardian. This is Daps. This is Nico. This is Nifty. This is Chris J. This is Fair. Good Zero. Flasher. Oh, this is Kerrigan. Are you listening to the truth? The truth. The truth. The truth. The truth. The truth. The truth. CSGO Podcast. The Truth CSGO Podcast. The Truth CSGO Podcast. Are we rushing in or are we going sneaky beaky like? It was around 9.30pm at night and I was run round into a game of matchmaking when my phone buzzed on the table and it was an email from my mum to say that my beloved cousin who I grew up with, who was my age, who had been in and out of rehab, who was self-dosing on meth, who once had been a country town lawyer who had laughed at all my bad jokes, who had recently begun sharing some outrageous, brilliant writing with anyone who he could contact, had killed himself. And as a wave of shock ran through me, I informed my teammates and shut the computer straight down. I wasn't sure whether to record a podcast about this, but there's been some suicides recently in the gaming world. And I know some of you, my listeners, suffer from depression as have I. I'm not sure I want to talk about everything I'm feeling because there's so much that I could feel like I I could record for days. And my job is a writer. I spend an inordinate amount of time choosing the right adjective for something, but it's unbearable to even attempt to stick an adjective before the word sadness. So I won't talk about that. Instead, I'm going to use this podcast to attempt to work out one of the most difficult, confusing things to come out of this for me and that is anger i didn't realize how angry i would be anger at myself first but also anger at others for not doing enough for fobbing off my help for not being around for him this took me by surprise it's almost as if it doesn't matter to my brain whether or not there's evidence the feelings have been coming and they're very uncomfortable I feel ashamed about this because in a time of grief, I'm pointing fingers at people. And I suspect it's a fairly normal part of grief. In fact, the famous seven stages of grieving lists shock and denial first, pain and guilt second, and third as anger and bargaining. It's people's response to this anger as well that makes me even angrier. Some people have told me, you can't feel guilty or you can't be angry at yourself or you shouldn't feel guilty, or you shouldn't be angry at yourself. And I feel like saying, I'm sorry, but I can do whatever the fuck I like. I can feel whatever the fuck I like. I'm fairly good at forgiving myself these days, or at least channeling some self-directed feelings into creative works. I don't need anyone to tell me what I can or can't feel, or what I should or shouldn't do. And in fact, my heart trembles to even out of this phrase, because it's so audacious in its accusatory tone in the face of such personal grief that my other family members are feeling, but this response seems to me like part of the same dysfunction that caused my cousin to take his life. So let me explain myself, and I'm going to do it as carefully as I can. The first incident occurs when I express to my brother my sadness that I didn't make the extra effort to push back against the resistant family members who were his caregivers and insist on some sort of group intervention. 
a group intervention that hadn't been done for my cousin, and my brother responds that he knows it wouldn't have made a difference, that the resistance would have been too strong. And I'm immediately indignant. How does he know? How can he use the word no? What is he, a soothsayer? God? We're both raw, and while we don't outright argue, the conversation doesn't end well, but it's not until later do I realize how angry this makes me, although it takes me even longer to work uh, to work out why. And the second time something like this happens is when I'm talking to my mum, and she says that one of my aunts has stated there was nothing anyone could do. And this triggers me again. There was nothing anyone could do? How does this woman know that? Is she an omnipotent being? Is she God? I'm not this uncharitable. She's trying to make herself feel better. I get it. This is a bromide. It's like the surviving family members of someone who was murdered who described the murderer as a monster. I know the grief in these circumstances is so intense, the only way to deal with it is to push it out like a raft, to disassociate the murderer as a human being, someone or something that you're not even guilty of sharing the same DNA with, or to box a depressed person's mental state as something inexorable, inhuman, unchangeable, other. I'm not angry that my family are saying things to try and make each other feel better. It seems very natural. But there is a nagging voice inside me that wonders if this desire to simplify is cut from the same cloth as the shroud that now lays over my cousin. Everyone has secrets, and every family has secrets. Some families have secrets that they all know, everyone knows, but they never speak about. There is a mutual silence, lies by omission, that the group allows to calcify into a carapace, a turtle shell, that the outside world cannot penetrate, that the family members will fight to the death to protect. My impression is that this tarpaulin of denial is often based on a suppression of what Jung might have called the shadow self, the unconscious side, or the part of us which we are not aware. Oftentimes, this is an unspoken agreement to never speak of an earlier trauma, the death of a child, an early divorce, the witnessing of an accident. Woven over this whole is a tapestry of platitudes. We are a strong family. Everyone grieves in their own way. Children need to grow up themselves, or that classic nugget crying is a sign of weakness. There's an amazing book, called The Family Crucible. It's by August Napier, a psychologist who trained and worked with the trailblazing family therapist Carl Whitaker in the 60s and 70s, and the book follows and comments on the therapy of a family over the course of several years. In the book, Napier says a most incredible thing. He says, Most suicides require a minimum of two parties, someone who wants to die and someone who wants him or her dead. Napier is still alive, and I've actually reached out to him to try and clarify what this means, because as devastating as its implications are, it's actually buried in the book, merely a throwaway comment amidst the discussion of a different topic. But just to imagine a grain of truth in this is to invite a terrifying amount of possibilities if someone you know has chosen to end their life. If you were to pull at a spider's web, which I'm using as an analogy for a social network, Doesn't it take someone pulling in one direction to cause a tear behind them? If you listened to the last episode, I spoke about the usefulness that might arise out of recognizing the power we have over other people and the power we allow other people to have over us. But I didn't mention the horizontal power of groups, which 
it is a power basically of homeostasis. This is the power of groupthink, the assumptions confirmed through gossip and news and social tools such as praising or shaming. And it's the kind of power, especially in families, it is incredibly difficult to identify. It reminds me, and I'm aware this isn't a pretty analogy, but it reminds me of the stories of Hiroshima and the way the intense heat fused people's clothing into their skin. Because sometimes the implicit rules of a family or a group can feel like they are fused into the skin of the family. Once we do manage to identify them, in my case, because we're yanked out by tragedy, we can be disgusted by ourselves for having been silent and disgusted at the others who still act as if the contract is binding. I don't want to get into the weeds of what these group denials can be. Needless to say, they often result in the scapegoating of one person, sometimes referred to as the black sheep. It could be a daughter playing truant, a father labelled by the family as a traitor for having an affair, a son whose elopement is a disgrace to the entire family name and religion, But sometimes this person will become the mouthpiece of the group who speaks the words no one dares to say, who utters the desperate cry of grief for the other muted members who would sooner turn to stone than to the sun. These people push out their own raft, and those who are left behind, if they can overcome their bewilderment or embarrassment or discomfort, will sometimes sadly say, he is suffering. In this instance, with my family, the saying, nothing could be done, is sinister to me. It chills me. Its finality defies me to disagree. Its totality brooks no debate. It's not, something could have been done, but it would have been very hard. Or, something could have been done, but none of us had the energy. Or, it's very hard to imagine what could have been done. All of those are a confession of humanity, of imperfection, or frailty. They are honest words. If you, as a family, have used the idea of perfection as a coping mechanism to deal with trauma, then to admit that something could have been done is a destruction of the entire epidermis under which your soft, vulnerable underbelly crouches. To say, I can't imagine what could have been done, is to open a doorway into the loneliness of mortality that is so hard for us to admit. When I ask myself, why do people feel isolated when they're around so many others, when they have support systems, when they have loved ones, when they have pets and friends and family and spouses and children, like my cousin did? I suspect the answer might be that some of them are suffering behind this door of definites, of defensive absolutes, of the tyrannical, oppressive inhumanity of group secrets. One of the things you will hear people say when depressive people are still alive is, you can't help someone who won't help themselves, or there's only so much you can do. And once again, when I hear that, I think to myself, what quantum mechanics are you a master of that I'm yet to learn? Isn't it amazing that we are so used to repeating these, not just in our families, but in our societies, and at the same time, other absolutes as follow your passion, or if you work hard, the sky's the limit. We love putting no limits on the possibilities of success, but lie to each other's faces about the possibilities of tragedy. This feels to me like a denial of the shadow self on a social level. 
Now, there's a lot said about the destigmatization of mental health issues in society, and it seems that the gaming world is, in some ways, a little ahead of things. Maybe this is due to the nature of why people turn to games in the first place. But I, I, I've been noticing that depression is almost a buzzword amongst millennials. It's like it's become ironic to joke about how depressed you are. And I wonder where this irony comes from. I suspect it might come from the knowledge that saying you are depressed actually does little to alleviate the depression. In fact, it actually serves to isolate the depressed even more because it essentially locates the problems in their life squarely inside them. And so if they've got a modicum of resources, they get one-on-one therapy and maybe a gym membership or a course of antidepressants or a bunch of messages from strangers or followers on social media. But in my experience, it's mental health issues themselves that arise from the stigmatization of everything else. Sex, relationships, losing love in a marriage, wanting to study something your parents might not approve of, being ashamed about how much you game, grieving, expressing shame, expression of who you really are and what's different and special about you. In other words, you're a reflection of your network and how it functions. And I suspect that when you put your hand up and say, I am depressed, it should be an opportunity for your network to ask, how are we failing you? Not, how are you feeling like a failure? If one part of our body is unwell, for instance, we have a lung infection, we say we are sick. But if one of our immediate family members is unwell, we say they are sick. We forget that we are merely an organ of our family and our family is an organ of society. Now, I'm talking here about Australians. I don't know what it's like in the rest of the world. I know there are cultures that still have large interconnected families who get together and discuss individual problems as if they are the responsibility of the group. However, I know most of you guys are from the US and Sweden and Denmark and Germany and New Zealand, and I don't imagine it's much different. The individual is prized above all else here, and so even though we offer words of support and loving messages on WhatsApp and encouraging words on an Instagram post, the individual is still supposed to suffer the appalling horror of depression alone. They're still supposed to suffer the indignity of pretense that this problem is theirs. It's their chemical imbalance. It's their inability to cope with a trauma. It's their disappointment at a failed relationship or a lost job. These are speculative words. I'm not a psychologist or a sociologist. As I said, this is just me trying to work out my anger. But I think when you're dealing with grief, anyone who gives you a definitive statement on what you should or shouldn't feel about any of these things might simply be saying any old crap that comes into their heads because they just don't know and they're terrified of saying the wrong thing. Just as I was saying last episode, anyone who gives you a definitive opinion on what happens with these issues we've seen recently, the allegations and and stuff. It's the same thing. And maybe, just maybe, this fear that people have means they will end up saying the wrong thing. And I put quotations around the wrong thing. Because there's no end or beginning to the love we might give each other or the sadness we might feel at the loss of someone or the effort we might put in 
to keep someone alive. It could simply be that it's infinite, that it's endless, and that it's ongoing until we die. And for some people that's unbearable. It's easy to pretend that it's finite. For me, as has become the thesis of this podcast, I'm going to throw up my hands. I'm going to let others tell themselves that they know. I'm going to let them tell each other how to feel and let them agree what not to talk about. Because I will talk to whoever wants to listen and when they ask my opinion, I will try to be honest and say, I don't know. It's hard to admit that, but that's the only way I know to be human. I am a human and I don't know. Perhaps everything could have been done. The alternative seems to be waiting until the worst that could happen has happened. And then listening to people say, he's in a better place now. Or she's in a better place now. Why do I get the why do I get the feeling that a better place could exist here now on Earth? Perhaps if if you know someone who is suffering, you could do something. Something meaningful, something that admits I'm a part of your suffering. In my silence or my action, I might be responsible. Because I know you and I love you. And we are different people, but we are also organs in the same body. If you know what I'm saying, don't wait until it's too late. Don't wait.